for um, the truth that you reveal in the book of Daniel. Lord, it's so amazing to read about things that you laid out in detail 400 years before they came to pass and, and things that span into our time and beyond. Lord, you are such a great God. You are the great God of the universe. There is none like you. Um, everything else that we set up um, is just uh, a waste, Father, compared to who you are. Lord, I just pray that you'd bless our time in your word and allow us to come to know you better, allow us to, to learn of you and to grow in you. And I just pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, Kelly and I got married in 1996. July 20th, which happens to be Phil and Elaine's anniversary. There was somebody else who had that anniversary in here. That's right, Don and Roberta. That's right. Anybody else have J J July 20th? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. It's beautiful. Um, that's right, best day of my life. Well, shortly after getting married, <laughs> yeah, shortly after getting married, we moved down to Columbia, South Carolina, and um, I would be attending seminary there, um, and we decided that we would kind of start marriage off slowly, and rather than jumping right into school, we'd take a year uh, just to kind of be married and get acquainted with the area and and um, before I would, I would start seminary. And um, within a few months, uh, after mo having moved there, Kelly, well, let me say, Kelly had a job as a nurse at a hospital there in Columbia. And um, I was working different jobs. I've told you about my job as a waiter at El Chico. And, um, but I, I also, I then picked up a job working as a ticket agent for Continental Airlines. And which involved a month's worth of training in Newark, New Jersey. So they would, I'd fly up there during the week and then fly home on the weekends. So doing that for a month, it was, you know, it was training on, on a new married couple. And um, as well, when I, prior to that, Kelly and I were working different shifts from each other, which many of you can understand that. And um, so during this time that I'm training in Newark, New Jersey during the week, um, by no fault of her own, in a very unjust way, Kelly lost her job at the hospital. And that's kind of what happened one, during one of the weeks. During another one of the weeks, uh, we're driving our little Dodge Colt, the only car we had. And, and I had taken it to get its oil changed at a little oil change place. And they mentioned to me that my the axle that runs from the from the engine to the little front wheel drive or from the transmission to, to the front wheels there, one of those axles um, had gone bad and so they wanted to change it out for me so I said sure and unbeknownst to me they put in the wrong size into it which is kind of unbelievable but um, it drained out all the transmission fluid so as we're driving down the road one day the transmission just <laughs> seizes up you know right there on the road so here Kelly is sitting at home, you know, 
She was, had been the main breadwinner at that point. No job, no car. I'm off in New Jersey training. And one of the lessons that the Lord taught us during that time, being that we were fully convinced and committed to the fact that God in his sovereignty is always working for his glory in all things. I was raised with a firm conviction and discipled under a confirmed conviction of that. But with that in mind, one of the lessons that we learned during this time was that many of the things that we go through, we don't go through them for any reason for us to do something other than to give it back to him in prayer and to, and to just rest in him and to, to rely on him during that time. And that was a lesson that we, we learned during that time. Um, also, within the first three months of our getting married, we, we found out that we'd be expecting Hannah. And um, that made it all better. That's right. She was born one week before I started classes uh, for my MDiv, and which, which was wonderful and, and made seminary you know, a neat experience in that way. But we knew then also when God had blessed us with our first child at age of uh, 23 and 24 that we would be living our lives on his timetable. Daniel's writing in chapter 8 would be an encouragement to the people of Israel who would live 400 years after his writing. They would need to know that God had a timetable for them. You know, I get this email every day from the Weather Channel, and it gives me the seven-day forecast. And... Today I was excited because it says something like on either Wednesday or Thursday, it's supposed to be 44 degrees. And then I thought, wait, the forecast I got yesterday, it said everything was in the 30s. And, and, and the same day was involved with that, and I realized by the time I get the forecast tomorrow, that same day will be back down into the 30s on this forecast. So why get a seven-day forecast anyways, Right? What's amazing about Daniel's writings, and we'll see this even more in chapter 11, is his detailed prediction from God's visions that he was giving him of 400 years into Israel's future. And we have the, the, the beautiful advantage of being able to look back on those years through the eyes of history and see how those predictions and how those encouragements and the hope that it gave Israel played out. But before walking through Daniel 8, let me say also, Daniel 8 is the first vision of Daniel's that's written in Hebrew. We mentioned before that I think it's through chapter 1, he writes in Hebrew, and then he writes in the language of the Gentiles. It would be like writing in English today. He writes in Aramaic through chapter 7 as if to say, listen, Gentiles, to these things. And then he picks back up in chapter 8 and writes in Hebrew again. And we can only assume that this is to be as an encouragement to the, to the Jewish people 
Now, while Daniel 7 describes the rule of the final Antichrist, providing us with, us with the prediction of his final demise as well, we learned last week that the demise of the final Antichrist will lead to the literal rule of Christ Jesus. This early type of Antichrist that we will learn of today will be one that will affect the Jewish people especially. He'll be he will be a foreshadow of the final Antichrist who is to come, but for the Jews of his day, he's enough. We can understand why Daniel starts to write in Hebrew at this point, because his people need this message. Let's just start moving through Daniel chapter 8 here. We'll begin with Daniel's location in the vision as it begins in, in verses, verse 1. Go ahead, don't, don't fail to open your own Bibles up here to Daniel chapter 8 as well. Um, he says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that which appeared to me at the first, talking about after the vision of chapter 7, this is about two years um, following that. He said, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I saw in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the, the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah? Well, let me, let me help a little bit here. At this point in Daniel's life, close to 80 years old, Susa is simply the royal city, a, a royal city of Persia, which is rising in power. Susa is over here in the Persian area, and Persia will join up with the Median Empire and become the Medo-Persian Empire, as we've talked about. Uh, Daniel is located here in Babylon. But in his vision, he envisions himself standing 200 miles away in Susa at a royal city at that, at that location. A century from Daniel's time, when Persia has long reigned the land, Xerxes will build an amazing palace at this location of Susa. Within that palace will be the stories of the book of Esther. As well, Nehemiah would be the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes in this palace of Susa. The vision that Daniel has is of two animals at this location. Uh, he's standing there at the Ulai Canal. These two animals are a ram and a goat, and specifically a horn of the goat that will come up into play with here. Thankfully, the vision comes with an interpretation delivered to Daniel by an angel, or else we'd be at a loss. Um, we're going to move through our chapter here this morning, um, dipping into both Daniel's vision and then into the angel's interpretation of that vision. So we'll kind of be bouncing between two sections as we move through it. Um, but first, let's understand how Daniel received this interpretation. So stepping into the chapter in the middle here at verse 15, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand 
the vision. So Daniel sees a man who turns out to be the angel Gabriel. A voice of one that we can only assume to be the voice of God tells his messenger, which is what an angel is, he tells his messenger Gabriel to deliver his message. This is the same Gabriel of the gospel accounts. He'll bring the message to Zechariah for telling him of his baby son that would be born as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. He'll also be the one who brings the message to Mary, letting her know that she would become pregnant, and that pregnancy would bear the Messiah to the world. So it says here what Gabriel did, moving into verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the, the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. You know, let me just make a side note comment here. And this might only speak to the teenagers maybe who, you know, there's a lot in popular culture today having to do with wizards and dragons and power and magic and things like that. Maybe you guys can remember that from, from your childhood as well. It's interesting because for Ezekiel in chapter 1 of Ezekiel and for Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and for the same for John in Revelation 1 and here for Daniel all of them had the response when they came into contact with an amazing sight like this and revelation from the Lord, it, it knocked them out. And what's interesting is in man-centered um, supernatural things or religious things, man is elevated. And when magic is supposedly dealt with, I noticed this watching um, a movie uh, with my kids just recently that the person that, that used the magic, their strength was depleted because the thought is the magic came from them. But we're reminded here with this mighty man of God, Daniel, the magic doesn't, the, the magic, the power doesn't reside in us. He is a spiritual weakling when it comes to being confronted with the revelation of God, it knocks him out. It knocks him unconscious in his vision here. So just to say that. But, so it moves on, or, or it can, we'll, we'll remain here in these verses here. And, and I want to highlight what he's talking about of this time of the end. On first reading, we would think that Gabriel is speaking about the end of the world as we know it that would culminate in the return of Christ. This would especially seem this way after what we learned about last uh, Sunday in chapter 7 about the, the, anti, the final Antichrist and his demise and that ushering in the reign, literal reign of Christ. But we'll learn today that the important message of Daniel's vision is to give hope to a persecuted people and to share with them God's timeline for the end of that persecution. Their hope would come from the fact that their persecution would have a time of the end to it. 
So let's move into this vision of the ram and the goat that Daniel sees. So, so as you move, look through um, your Bible here in Daniel 8, we're stepping over into verse 3, back into verse 3, that begins what Daniel saw as he's standing there at the citadel in Susa. It says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, as you're looking at your Bibles there, look over at verse 20. You'll see there in verse 20 that the angel Gabriel tells Daniel this, this ram is the nation of, or the empire of Medo-Persia. Okay? So we learn from Gabriel that, that this is Medo-Persia. As with the bear of chapter 7, it's lopsided. The bear was lopsided. This ram, this, this ram has one horn that's larger than the other, representing the Persian people. Medo-Persia and later, per, later Persia alone extends its empire in all directions with an army numbering over two million soldiers alone. Even though the Persians will reign for over 200 years, they're only mentioned in this vision. They're only considered as laying down the tracks for the freight train of the Greek Empire. So we'll continue in the vision with verse 5 here. It says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat. I'm not sure why, but I think the NIV says a shaggy goat. So maybe those of you who raise goats would be able to understand that. But it says, And a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous, that's a great word, conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down, this being the goat cast the ram down, to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up, came up four, here's that word again, conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Thank you. Conspicuous. Some, some of you English majors, does it take my daughter to call that out? Conspicuous. Thank you. No wonder it didn't recognize it. Okay, so let's jump to the interpretation of Gabriel in verse 21 that you'll find there. It says, And the goat, he says, is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
As we've discussed before, the leader of the Greeks during their expansion was Alexander the Great. You heard about him in school. You've heard about him at different times, maybe the History Channel or something. In this vision, the goat is described as being enraged at the ram. You know, the outcome of World War I drove Hitler to raise up militarized Germany with a vengeance leading to World War II. In the same way, the Persians had defeated the Greeks near Athens in both the battles of Marathon and Salamis. These defeats came under the reign of Alexander's father, Philip II. And they enraged Alexander against Persia. When they described him as his, as their, his first king, it's his, the first king in, in prominence and in, he was in place during Greece's great expansion. So we've also discussed the amazing speed of the Greeks when they took over the Persian Empire. Here the speed is referenced in the vision of Daniel by the fact that the goat moves without even touching the ground, moving so quickly. Having conquered the Persian Empire by age 32, Alexander died at age 33 of malaria combined with complications from alcoholism. This is what is represented by the large horn of the vision being broken. Recall in Daniel chapter 7, the leopard that represented Greece had four heads. In the same way, the goat of chapter 8 that represents Greece here is seen as developing four horns in Alexander's place. Now here's a map of the Greek empire. It's um, a little bit out of focus here, but you can see here that, that it's divided up among the four generals who, who um, worked under Alexander while he was alive. Ptolemy um, gained much of Egypt and up um, into Israel, while Seleucus gained uh, this area from Syria, uh, branching over toward India. Let me see if I can get this name. Lysimachus um, was up in this area, branching into uh, Asia Minor, and north of Greece. And Cassander had Greece and Macedonia. Those are the four um, generals which the Greek Empire was divided up among them. Now you'll recall here in verse 22 that we're told that four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power, being Alexander. As Gabriel tells us of the four horns, None of these generals ruled with Alexander's power. Uh, these rulers would be, their, their ruling would be full of fighting between each other, as we'll learn about in chapter 11. And this takes us back to Daniel's vision, though, which brings us to another little horn with an attitude, much like what we saw in chapter 7. This is what the vision is centered on. This little horn, with everything up to now simply giving it historical context. So we move here into looking at the little horn with, and his explanation. So you'll see in verse 9 of Daniel's vision, it says, Out of one of them, being out of one of these four horns, <clears throat> came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, 
and toward the glorious land. It grew greater even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. This glorious land here, as you would assume, is Daniel referring to the land of Israel. It says, we learn what is meant by other statements here, by the message brought from Gabriel. And if you turn to verse 23, you'll see where Dan Gabriel continues his interpretation of what Daniel saw here. It says, and at the latter end of their kingdom, being these four, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, speaking of the little horn that Daniel saw, one who, has, who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So it's unclear here whose transgressions are being described as reaching their limit. But the latter end of the kingdom here is referring to the reign of Greece and specifically to the effectiveness of these four generals or, or their heirs after them. The vision has jumped almost two centuries from the division of the Greek Empire to the 160s B.C., so 160 years prior to the coming of Christ. Keep in mind that this is around four centuries now from the time that Daniel is seeing this living in Babylon at about 80 years old. The Greek ruler who's characterized by the horn of this vision is a man named Antiochus. He's a bad dude. Especially in the way that he treats the Jews of Palestine. He rose to power in about 175 B.C., killing his brother, who's the rightful heir to the throne of the Seleucid dynasty, that, that um, dynasty that ran from Syria towards India on our map. He took the name Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the illustrious god. Others were referred to him rightfully as Antiochus Epimenes which means Antiochus, the madman. Again, looking at our map here, you can see he rose up from uh, an heir to the Seleucid dynasty of the Greek Empire. <clears throat> Upon taking the throne, he wages a campaign against the Greek ruler Ptolemy VI and conquers Egypt. So this is what... Daniel means in his vision or sees in his vision when it says that, that this horn um, conquered southward and then east and then we'll see why it says and then toward the glorious land. So uh, Seleucid or Antiochus conquers into the Ptolemy uh, dynasty down here in Egypt and takes Egypt himself but he was pushed out of Egypt by the growing Roman Empire. And he was angry with the Jews because they were giving him trouble, but he also wanted to create a buffer zone between his dynasty and the Roman Empire and Rome's progress. So he decided to totally subdue Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and make it into a Hellenistic or a Greek 
city completely. So this is what Daniel meant by he, the, the ram charged south, then east into Egypt, and then toward the glorious land. On his retreat from the Romans, Antiochus decides to make the Jews both an example and a buffer zone. So back to our interpretation here by Gabriel. His ultimate Antiochus, his ultimate and most infamous act, would be setting up a sacred object of Zeus in the temple of God. As well, he celebrated turning into the temple of Zeus by sacrificing a pig on the altar of the temple, hereby also making it useless by the Jewish people, a pig being certainly unclean by the Mosaic law, and it was what it came to be known as an abomination of desolation to the Jewish people. The altar of God would be considered unusable and would eventually be torn down and replaced. The temple would, be, would need to be re-consecrated, but first Antiochus would need to be dealt with. Daniel describes some of the hosts and the stars being thrown down. Gabriel gives the interpretation of these as mighty men and saints who are destroyed. Antiochus certainly kills many faithful worshipers of God, including pre any priests that would defy him. He would line up the priests of God and force them to eat the ritually unclean animal's flesh or face death. So back to Daniel's vision of the little horn. It says, It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, being God. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Antiochus certainly exalts himself. At one point, demanding to be worshipped as a god himself, he prohibited the Jews from sacrificing in their temple or carrying out other obedience to the Mosaic law. And as I mentioned, eventually he made the temple unusable for sacrifice. He also plundered the temple's treasury for his own personal gain. So let's jump over to Gabriel's message here regarding Daniel's vision of the little horn and what he'll do. In verse 25 it says, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. So Gabriel is helping us to understand that Antiochus' actions were not just against the Jewish people, but against the prince of princes, against God himself. Antiochus is brought down in BC, 167 BC. His acts of horrific torture and desecration, 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 yeah, set off the Macedonian, Macedonian revolt and wars. This all happening during what's known as the intertestamental period, 
So between the writing of Malachi and the closing of the Old Testament and the, uh, the angel's appearance to Zechariah, these were called the 400 silent years or the intertestamental period. So what we're describing here is going on between that time. So he's brought down in 167 B.C. This set off the Maccabean revolts and wars. He was traveling back toward Persia to place his treasure in the temple of one of his gods. But his mighty armies are being defeated by bands of rebels, these Maccabeans, who are empowered by God's hand. In frustration, he turns back to Israel to squash them again. But he's struck with insanity, while at the same time, his body is eaten from the inside by intestinal worms. History has told us what it meant that Antiochus was broken, but not by human hands. Daniel's vision continues as he overhears the conversation of angels. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary of, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So Antiochus died. In 164. The temple mount was taken back and secured. By the revolt of Mattathiah and his five sons. Part of the Maccabean revolt. And this led to the reconsecration of the temple. Now there's different ways to interpret. Just when these 2300 evenings and mornings began. The most important message of Daniel's vision and Gabriel's message of interpretation is this. There will be an end to the persecution that the Jews would face at the hands of this Antichrist foreshadow. Gabriel and Daniel close their statements with these words. In verse 26 we read, The vision, this is Gabriel speaking, The vision of the evening's and the mornings that has been told is true. Notice what he calls it, the evenings and the mornings. It's a vision of those 2,300 evenings and mornings. In other words, this, the vision of this time in which it'll come to an end. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now, meaning save it for the future. No, it's not saying don't share it with others right now. It's saying seal it up and keep it safe. And then we have Daniel's response, which is that he got sick to his stomach. It says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for de some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Kind of speaks a little bit to people that think if you just have enough faith, you won't get sick. But it's nice to hear about a great man of faith feeling squeamish about what God has in mind. 
makes me feel maybe like not such a big wimp. But what is Daniel for eight for harvest? I believe it's this. God is working out all things for his glory and for our good and for the good of his children according to his perfect timing. God is working out all things for his glory and for the good of his children according to his perfect timing. We see in this the, the eternal principle first that Satan's plan is destructive. Daniel or, or, or Gabriel said in verse 24, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Now I know this isn't Satan himself doing it, but we certainly get a glimpse of evil itself when we learn about the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. We're also given glimpses of the one who will be Satan's greatest embodiment of his evil, the future Antichrist. From Daniel 8, we see a bit of the intellectual genius that will be manifested in the Antichrist. We see the cunning and boldness that will be wrapped up in his decisions. But you might be thinking, but aren't we talking about Antiochus, this Greek ruler? What does this have to do with the Antichrist that is coming? And I mentioned this shortly last week, but there's a law in, there's a rule in biblical prophecy called double fulfillment. And we find, we'll find descriptions of the Antichrist pop up again in Daniel's vision. We saw the rise and fall of the final Antichrist described in Daniel chapter 7. We'll see him discussed again in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11. But as with today, chapters 9 and 11 will also be describing other rulers who will come onto the world stage. These fit the prophetic rule of double fulfillment. When prophecy fits this rule, it's perfectly normal for it to be fulfilled in several events or persons. But it, it will also be fulfilled once and for all in its fullness in one final event or person. The, the spirit of a lesson taught by Grover in Sesame Street is, is, applies to this. It's the near and far. Wait, I did that wrong. Near and far. Kelly heard me practicing that and uh, in Grover's voice and she was like, please don't do that. So I, I won't. <clears throat> in other words, there's a near and partial fulfillment in a situation of double fulfillment and there's a far and full fulfillment. With Antiochus as the near fulfillment of Daniel's vision, the final Antichrist is the far and full fulfillment of it. Many characteristics will be shared, his determination, his cunning nature, his blasphemy, his understanding of the times, his quickly turning on the Jews. His similarity that will be the most clear will be the repeat of the desecrating abomination in the temple. Jesus himself describes the coming of the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, 
in Matthew 24, 15 through 16, and he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And picks up in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and, will, and never will be. Now even this prophecy of Jesus' is fulfilled in a double fulfillment. Because he, he was foreseeing one the destruction of Jerusalem under General Titus of the Romans. But in the future, there would be an abomination of desolation that will be carried out in the end times by the final Antichrist. And it will be in the likeness of Antiochus Epiphanes, and it will lead up to the literal reign of Christ. For instance, Jesus says, there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So in other words, once that great tribulation happens, there will not be another one like it. I don't think that he's talking just about the Romans' destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Are you aware, I heard this recently, that a study was done and from I believe it was from the time of Christ through the 1800s, it was estimated that 17 million Christians died for their faith, were martyred. But during the 1900s, the 20th century, there were 45 million killed. And the fact is, is that we are on pace to beat that in the 21st century. Around the world, 200 Christians die a day for their faith. So I don't think that the destruction of Jerusalem was a tribulation that there would never be another one like it. We are on pace for another. So Jesus' words here is also the rule of double fulfillment applies to it, that there is an abomination of desolation as spoken of in Daniel that is coming. So, so that ties us back to understand that Antiochus is one of those um, antichrists that First John, John writes in First John saying, up until now there have been many antichrists. So, returning back to verse 24 here, it says, um, well, we learn today what the fearful destruction of Antiochus would eventually look like. The NIV uses this rather than fearful destruction. I like its word. It uses the word astounding devastation. The New American Standard says that this Antiochus will destroy it to an extraordinary degree. Antiochus is only a taste of what Satan would like to do to God's creation, namely us. Nebuchadnezzar threatened Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace if they would not add the worship of his deity to their worship of God. 
Antiochus was the first ruler that the Jews faced that punished them if they did not stop obeying God's commands. You see the difference there? Once his soldiers found a group of Jewish people observing the Sabbath in a cave, and he had them seal up the entrances and set fires so it killed them by suffocation. Another time, he learned of two women that circumcised their newborn children, and both mothers and children were killed. Another mother was forced to watch her seven sons be tortured to death. And then she herself was killed because she still refused to disobey God's commands as Antiochus expected. We talked last week about the fact that the Antichrist is the embodiment of Satan's effort in the world. We contrasted Satan's work through his Antichrist with the actions of Jesus, the true Christ. And I, and I don't think it hurts to look at these contrasts again. But just to let you know, you don't need to write them down. I actually, I photocopied a fuller list of these, and they're in the back. But, but look at these. The Antichrist, his deception brings bondage, but Jesus Christ is the truth that brings freedom. The Antichrist will do his own will. Jesus came to do the Father's will. The Antichrist will exalt himself for his own glory. And Jesus humbled himself for our salvation. The Antichrist comes to destroy. Jesus came to seek and to save. The Antichrist is known as the lawless one. Jesus committed no sin. The Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus will be exalted to the throne of heaven. The cunning nature of the coming Antichrist is an outgrowth of the crafty nature of the one that empowers him. I want for us to be reminded today that to give in to temptation is to bring Satan's destruction into our lives. To resist God's conviction of our sin is to deepen its devastation. Scripture tells us that our body is God's temple. That our mind is his sanctuary. Our enemy won't stop until our bodies and our minds are enslaved and we are useless to furthering God's kingdom on this earth. I want to challenge you to take the destructiveness of sin very seriously. You know, the enemy's deception is to think that we're the only person that can participate in it and it not affect us. Maybe you need to start with being honest with a fellow believer about where sin is destroying you. Maybe it takes another form for you. But we need to be serious about dealing with sin and temptation in our lives. It's, see it here as just the, ed, the tip of the spear of the destructiveness that Satan would like to perform over this whole earth. But the fact is, as one theologian put it, the devil is still God's devil. What is meant by that is that God is even control, in control 
of what Satan is allowed to do. We see God's per plan is perfect. Jeremiah 29, 11 reminds us, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Daniel reminds us, uh, us of this in terms of national rulers in the theme verse that we've been using for our study in Daniel from Daniel 2.21. Speaking of God, he says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. We see the book of Daniel at work here in God's dealing with Antiochus. I'm sorry, we see this theme of the book of Daniel at work in God's dealing with Antiochus that we've looked at. And we've seen that God's... We see this in God's perfect sovereignty and in his perfect timing. And we're just going to look at these very shortly here. It says his power, speaking of Antiochus, shall be great, but not by his own power. If you jump down to the end, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Sorry. Move that forward. There we go. We see in the explanation that Antiochus rises, but not by his own power. His ascending to the position of power that he would have is a part of God's sovereign plan. Also, his demise, his being broken, is by no human hand. The, the future readers of Daniel's writings needed to know that the rule of Antiochus somehow was under God's control. We're told this in well-known verses from Romans 8. It says, For we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Notice first that this is a promise for those who walk with Christ as their Savior. I wouldn't encourage someone with these verses if they do not know Christ as their Savior. If they've not received the person and work of Christ to apply for their part, providing them with a relationship with God. For them, all things are working toward eternal separation from God in hell. But notice also the true definition here of what our good is. It's to be conformed to the image of His Son. All things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good that Romans 8.28 is talking about. The good that God is working all things toward is that we might be more like Jesus. And somehow that's what he was working out through Antiochus and his people, the Jews. Rest in God's sovereignty. If you know Christ as your Savior, there is not a moment in your life in which he is not at work for his glory and for your good. 
But ask yourself also if you're really interested in the good of growing in Christ that he has in mind. This is so often where our discontentment comes from. Lord, I'm interested in it if, it, if it's comfortable. But if it means being uncomfortable to grow in Christ, I don't want anything to do with it. I won't go into that. But God also works according to his perfect timing. As I've said, there's different ways to define when these 2,300 evenings and mornings would have begun. First option is that they, they represented 2,300 days. And the second option is that when it describes 2,300 evenings and mornings, that it represented the evening sacrifice and the morning sacrifice, meaning that it was half of the 2,300 in terms of days. Regardless of which they represent, the impact here was intended to do the same for the Jewish people. It was intended to give them a hope that God would work according to his perfect timing. Again, that's why Gabriel says, seal up the vision of the evenings and the mornings of the 2300. This is also a theme of Romans chapter 8. For we know, he says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, there's a lot of times where that inward groaning becomes outward groaning, right? I don't know when it was a few years ago that every time I would sit down in a chair uh, or bend over to pick something up. Wives, you hear that at home? Bend over to pick something up. Uh, you know, every time you hear that, remember, that is your groaning for redemption. It gets louder as you get older, doesn't it? You know, Bill Hepburn, and I, and I asked him if I could comment on this a little bit. He understands a little bit better of what it means to groan as he waits for the redemption of his body. Pray for Bill. He's in a lot of pain. You know, um, might, it may be that just the tips of your fingers seem like a small thing, but those are there to feel a lot. There are so many nerves there. He's in a lot of pain. This week, as you heard, a table saw made it so that his glorified body will have a little bit more fingers than his present body. And that's what this is talking about. But Bill and Lois also saw God's perfect timing in the event. Starting with their neighbor, who's an EMT, being home and available to come over and help. And as Steve mentioned and Bill mentioned in his, his email, that God's timing was at, the, at, the, at work in the location of Bill's surgery. Here he's gowned up. They're about to wheel him down the hallway to go in for a $20,000 procedure at the St. Vincent Heart, or not Heart Institute, Hand Center, which hand surgeons are not cheap because they're used to setting nerves back and trying to get things working again, and he basically just needed things trimmed off, 
But, and there his, his brother looks at him and says, Bill, you're a veteran. Can't you get this done at the VA? Now, a few minutes later, that question would have been inconsequential. It wouldn't have made a difference. But the Lord's timing was there. His timing is perfect. And I'll have John come on up and close us in a few songs. But, you know, again, God's sovereignty is truly perfect. And his timing is also perfect as well. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you're in control of this moment. Thank you, Lord, that if something were to happen to one of us going home today, that we know that for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that it would be for our good and that that good is for better conforming us to the image of your Son. Lord, we don't, we would be downright weird if we wished for something uncomfortable. But Lord, give us the grace and the faith and the hope to long to be like your son no matter what it takes. And Lord, thank you that you have your plan and you're working according to your timing no matter how we feel about it. I pray these things in Jesus' name.